Well, today in the Gospel of Matthew, we are seeing Jesus being nailed to the cross. Before we begin, I just want to ask you, what do you think about that? How, how do you feel about that? The title of our message today is The Cross, Weakness, or Power. How do you see it? When you think of Jesus being nailed onto one of these things in back of us, so there's an empty cross, but you think of Jesus being nailed to a cross, do you think it was a sad and unfortunate event? Or do you think it's the greatest act in human history? Is it shocking to you? Or have you perhaps become too used to it? Maybe you're indifferent to it. It doesn't seem to matter to you. Or perhaps you're here today. You're not a follower of Jesus. We're glad that you're here. I'm super glad that you're here. Perhaps you've given it little to no thought. So in some ways today we have to use our imagination. We have to picture Jesus being nailed to a cross. And as we picture him up there on the cross, we ask ourselves, is Jesus weak or is Jesus powerful? Is the cross of Jesus Christ a tragedy or is it a triumph? And this morning we'll join uh, the, and experience the crucifixion with people who are actually there. Sadly, this group of people are all going to be seen as rejecting God himself become a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it for a second. To the religious leaders and some of the other people, God on a cross is inconceivable. Too weak. Too weak. I mean, he parts the Red Sea. He does away with armies just with one angel in the middle of a night. He, he's created the cosmos. No way. No way. Impossible. To others, particularly the Romans, your king on a cross? What a joke. It's insane. Well, let's recap since it's been a while since we have been in Matthew's gospel. It's been a busy week for Jesus. After three, more than three years of ministry, he has just raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. And then he comes into the city for Passover week. The city is packed with people, and it started with uh, the triumphal entry, what some of us were raised to here as Palm Sunday, same, same thing. And the people began to ask themselves, is this our Messiah? But for them, we said that most of them wanted to be, the Messiah was the guy who was going to kick the Romans out, somebody mighty like King David. And then there were the debates in the temple with the religious leaders when they tried to outfox Jesus and they kept going back embarrassed with their tail between their legs. And now in the last 12 hours or so, the pace really picks up. We saw the Last Supper with his apostles and then Jesus moved on to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. While he was in the garden, Judas Iscariot, one of his apostles, betrays Jesus to the religious leaders and they cart him off to a false trial. To add to it, Jesus is abandoned by his friends, the other 11 apostles. So after the religious leaders uh, convict him of blasphemy, of saying he is the son of God, making himself out to be equal with God, they take him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, for the death penalty because they pronounced the death penalty on him, but the religious leaders, but they were not able to carry it out because they were under Roman occupation. Only the Romans could do it. They knew the charge of him saying he's their God would not fly at all. So their charge was treason. 
He says he's a king. And in the height of hypocrisy, they go, we have no other king but Caesar. The furthest thing from the religious leader's mind, but they knew it would get Jesus put on the cross. Pontius Pilate said, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. They had a custom during the Passover feast that what Pontius Pilate would do is he would release one prisoner to them. And he had this horrible, horrible prisoner named Barabbas. Remember, we talked about that. Jesus died in the place of Barabbas. And so he said to the people, do you want the horrible prisoner Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And they said, give us Barabbas. So from there, the Roman soldiers take Jesus and they brutally beat him and mock him. And then they give him a cross to carry. Really, they just give him the cross. Remember, they already would stick the stake in the ground. They had all set up for their execution sites. But because he was beaten so badly, Jesus needs help to carry that cross member of the cross, a large piece of wood. They take a man by the name of of Cyrene to help because Jesus was so weak. But now, knowing what the cross means and how sitting on that holy ground at the foot of the cross actually changes people, Matthew slows the pace down to get us all to ponder the cross. Now, as we come to verse 33, it's important to remember that not all of the events are necessarily in time order. The Bible writer is not so obsessed with time as we are. Verse 33, and when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of the skull, so that was the nickname, again, Calvarium in Latin, Calvary in English, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall, gall was very, very bitter, to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. So the soldiers take Jesus outside of the city to the place of executions. Now, the Romans were very deliberate in their executions. They had specific places where they did it, where there'd be a lot of traffic. There'd be a lot of people walking by. There were public displays. Why would they do that? They would want somebody walking, you know, coming into the city or going out of the city to see that. And perhaps they might say to their young son, son, if you cross Caesar, if you try and go behind his back, if you are a rebel or an insurrectionist, you're trying to have a revolution, that's where you're going to end up. That's what Caesar does to people, so, the, so that young man would be, would be terrified. The Roman soldiers were professional executioners. And for some people, it was almost like an event. People came and they watched and they yelled, a sick form of entertainment. But today, these people who are watching are also going to teach us about the cross. But they also teach us about the hard hearts of people towards other people. Imagine looking at someone hanging on a cross like that and and just not even knowing them, just yelling at them, joining in the entertainment of it all. How sick is that? And we also teach us about the spiritual blindness that people have, that we all have, in how they treat God. I'm not so sure we should be surprised. In the life of Jesus, it's always been this way. When he was just a baby, King Herod tried to kill him, massacring tons of babies under the age of two, so hopefully he could get this Messiah, Jesus. 
And then he quietly goes and lives this wonderful life with his parents. And then about the age of 30, he comes on the scene. And what's the first thing that happens? He's baptized. The Lord says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He goes out into the desert. And who joins him there? Satan. To tempt him. As he traveled around, he was healing. He was doing miracles. He was feeding people. He was loving people. The demonic activity was intensified. And then the religious leaders, their hatred, power brokers in the country, their hatred continued to grow and to grow and to grow. All along the way, Jesus fought for his life. Jesus battled for the kingdom of God. We're told here that they offer Jesus sour wine mixed with gall. Various theories on what that might be. Uh, some might say that it was a, it was a tradition of, of people from the Proverbs to, to, to give people some sort of a mixture to ease their pain. But here it appears that the soldiers are giving it to him. It's not an analgesic. How do you say that? Analgesic, thank you. Thank you for the medical people in the audience. What would I do without them? But it appears here the soldiers are giving it to him and it's more mockery. Some have suggested it might be some sort of a poison. No matter what, Jesus wants no part of it. He refuses. So whether it's a painkiller, a cruel joke, or a way to end it all sooner, Jesus will not compromise the experience of the cross. See, Jesus refuses their cup, but he will not allow anything to take him away from drinking the cup of God's wrath. And let's think of not God's wrath, not as a temper tantrum, but God taking a full cup and pouring it out against sin upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Listen to the prophetic words of King David almost a thousand years earlier, about a thousand years earlier, when he was in trouble and he needed help. Psalm 69, 20 and 21. Reproach, some versions say insults, has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. Another version says I'm in despair. I looked for someone to take pity or sympathy, some versions say, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall, some versions say poison, for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar, another version says sour wine, to drink. And then we come to verse 35. It says... Then they crucified him. Let's just stop there for a second. If you have your own Bible, and you should always bring your own Bible, it's way better to bring your own Bible, because then you can mark it up. Vance Havner said, we mark our Bibles, so our Bibles mark us. You might want to put brackets around that and write out in the margin, stop, pause, think. That's all Matthew says. And they crucified him. What remarkable restraint Matthew demonstrates. That's it. That's all we get. Like the other gospel writers, Matthew makes no attempt to preach a sermon on the horrors of crucifixion. Sadly, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, many pastors have not heeded their example and preached long sermons or long sermon series on the physical pain which can make it easy to miss the point. What is the point? 
The point is that Jesus Christ, both in body and soul, was made an offering for sin to God. A willing and obedient offering to God. Replacing the temple sacrifices, all of which pointed to God himself, the Savior, crucified on a cross. So the question is, as we gaze upon the cross, who was in control? Was it the religious leaders? Was it the Romans? Was it Jesus? Well, let's just take a sample, and we can go to many places. Remember, all through Matthew's gospel, Jesus kept telling the apostles what was going to happen. It just was not registering. But let's go to Jesus speaking from the, from the famous Good Shepherd passages in John 10. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. What does he say? He gives his life. John 10, 15, as the father knows me, even so I know the father and lay down my life for the sheep. John 7, 10, 17 through 18, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. There's your cross. And I have the power to take it again. There's your resurrection. This command I have received from my father. Interesting, this command I have received from my father. See, it's natural for us to focus on the words of Jesus, but it's also interesting. Sometimes I think we read the words of Jesus, and then we, there's something, that, you know, especially if you've got one of those red-letter Bibles, you, you go to the next section, it's not in red letters, you're like, it's not that important. But it's all the Word of God. And it's interesting to note how the Bible writers often focus on the reactions of the people to Jesus, So what was the reaction to Jesus after he was talking about being the good shepherd? One group of people said this, he's got a demon. He's mad. He's crazy. What is this? He's going to lay down his life and take it up again. And that's what God wants him to do. He's nuts. But other people said, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so you see the different reactions to what Jesus says. So let's pick up with verse 35 again. Then they crucified him, that's simple, and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And then he, and he goes back to Psalm twenty-two, eighteen again, King David. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 36, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Let's stop there for a second. Early on, when the Romans started with crucifixions, they kind of just you know, strung the guys up and left, and they never really thought of the fact that some people might come and take them down, and they would escape. Not by Jesus' time. By this time, no one escaped. And so they sat there, and they watched. That was their job. They were to make sure that he was dead, and no one possibly could come to rescue him. Verse 37, And they put up over his head the accusation, also could be the charge, written against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, typically, people were crucified naked. They would bring them out there. They would strip them of their clothes. 
that would add shame to everything else. A reminder to all of us that Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He just didn't take our sins upon him on the cross. He took upon our shame as well. I know we live in a time period right now where a lot of people are really struggling with shame. As a pastor, it's something that I encounter quite often, the shame that people have for some of the things that they've done or some of the things that the habits that they have. But Jesus died for your sin. Jesus died for your shame. He takes it upon him. And as this shameful death is happening, what are the soldiers doing? They're totally indifferent. They, they keep his clothes. Now, clothing at that time was worth a lot of money. So for them, it was sort of their tip. That's how they would, that's how they would, they would be paid some extra money. And notice how quickly Matthew moves us from the crucifixion to the insensitivity of the soldiers. They crucified him. And what do these guys do? These guys, well, we're working. We can't go, you know, we can't go to Atlantic City. We can't go to Las Vegas. Let's just gamble here. Just imagine just some guys dying on the cross, the insensitivity of guys taking out cards and saying, well, let's get some cards. Let's get some rocks. Let's just, we'll use the rocks for money and we will gamble and the winner will get some of his clothes or most likely his cloak. What was it for them? Just another day at the office. Sitting indifferent to Jesus, watching the clock. Some people might say, well, why would they want to poison him? Well, maybe all of the trial and all the beating took extra time. And imagine they're sitting there going, I told the wife I'd be home at this time. This is taking a lot longer than we thought. Just indifferent to him, not caring. But Matthew wants us to know Jesus died for sure. They crucified him and then they stayed with him. They kept watch over him there. Nobody was going to rescue him. So while Jesus hangs in pain, they sit and mock. They think... They're watching Jesus, but God is watching them. And God himself will have the last word. The tragedy here is that they missed the truth of what presumably Pontius Pilate or Pontius Pilate had somebody write on the sign that they hung, that this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, fair to say, this was Pontius Pilate and the soldiers' interpretation, thinking so little of the Jews. They would hang that they would hang that sign there that the religious leader said, no, 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 change it to, he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Why? Because I want people to walk by and see this insurrectionist and the Romans would be like, hey, look, there's your king. Romans hated the Jews. The feeling was mutual. There's your king. Look at him. That's your king? By the way, that's what our king Caesar does to your king and anybody who would try to be the new king of the Roman Empire. The Gospel of John tells us that it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So even the Passover tourists from out of town could understand it. They would know what was being said. But unknowingly, Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers were giving everyone a visual of the suffering servant and the Son of God. Unknowingly, their accusation has become the church's proclamation. Unknowingly to them, the crucifixion was actually the king's coronation. 
what they see as a punishment is actually protection. Remember way back in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew sort of gave us the theme of the whole gospel right at the beginning as the angel says to Joseph, he's going to come, Mary's going to have a son, you're going to name him Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, Yahweh saves is what his name means. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So it's not so much punishment, it is protection as Jesus is taking the penalty, as he is protecting his people from their sins as he dies there in their place. Verse 38. Then two robbers, probably a better way of thinking is not just common thieves, either murderers or rebels, insurrectionists. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. I find it interesting that only a few chapters ago, back in chapter 20, remember James and John's mother came to Jesus? I want my son on the right and the left. Jesus says, that's not going to happen. Now perhaps she's watching there and thinking, I'm glad they're not on the right and the left. 700 years earlier, Isaiah 53, 12 told us that the suffering servant would be numbered with the transgressors. He would be crucified with sinners to his right and his left. No doubt I would think that the, the soldiers were going, oh, look, there's the king and there's his cabinet. There they are. What a bunch of losers. Verse 39 takes us to the crowds often referred to as the passers-by. I want to read verse 39 and 40 twice. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Let's go slowly again. And those who passed by blasphemed him. Some versions say they jeered at him, wagging their heads, saying and saying, and they, and they twist the words of Jesus. Remember, in the trial of Jesus, they couldn't really get agreement on what Jesus actually said about destroying the temple. John told us he was talking about the temple of his body. They thought it was the actual temple of the building. Jesus said, you could destroy it, and I'll raise it up again in three days. But that had taken place early in Jesus' ministry, and they, they didn't remember, they didn't really couldn't get it together. Even the, the paid witnesses, the phony witnesses, couldn't get their lies straight. So verse 40, in saying, they twist Jesus' word, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. What are they saying? You claim such great things for yourself. Let's see you do it. Let's see you do it right now. And then watch very closely to what comes next. They say, if you are the son of God, Does that sound a little familiar to some of you? That's what Satan said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Oh, somebody has a box seat. (laughs) You see, here in, in, in Matthew's gospel, we're just seeing the seen world. We don't know about what's going on in the unseen world as the unseen demonic forces are surrounding that cross. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now we come to the mocking from three different groups of people. This first group, the passers-by. The next group is the religious leaders. And we'll come back to the two men that are crucified next to Jesus. 
The old Bible scholar Randolph Tasker calls them ignorant sinners, religious sinners, and condemned sinners. Now, who are the passerbys? Various theories. Perhaps they were the people that were yelling, crucify him at Pontius Pilate's hearing. Maybe they were hired by the religious leaders. Maybe they were friends of Barabbas. We don't really know. But also, perhaps, some of them were tourists. They had celebrated the Passover the night before. They were bringing the family back into town to to see the temple, to see Jerusalem, before they would get out, before the beginning of the Sabbath. So they're just walking in and, and seeing what's going on, and they see the accusation written in different languages. You know what they are? They're rubberneckers. Don't you hate rubberneckers? Sit in a long traffic jam for 20 minutes, and they get up and you find out it's some guy with a flat tire on the other side of the road. You're like, what are you doing? But that's what these people are doing. They're gawkers. They're just seeing what's going on. Now, it's interesting here to me that while some could be totally ignorant of what is really happening, the word of God calls mocking Jesus blasphemy. Do you know anybody who mocks Jesus? Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're a mocker of Jesus. I was one. But I stand here today and tell you that Jesus forgives mockers. Jesus has a place in the kingdom for mockers. And sometimes he mocks the other guy by saying, I'm going to make a mocker a pastor. Now who's laughing? (laughs) You say, but wait a minute, they're just challenging Jesus. They're just telling him what to do. Matthew says, fine, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. What's ironic about this is there's so much irony. Matthew writes with such irony. There's, there's so much irony in all of this. I mean, really, he's showing the, the strength of Jesus as they think he's so weak, is that many of them had just celebrated Passover. And they're passing by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as he hangs there on the cross, many of whom might be on their way to the temple when the true temple of God, Jesus Christ the righteous, is right in front of them. I mean, just, can you hear it? Can you hear it? Just imagine Jesus is hanging there on the cross and you look up on the hill in Jerusalem and you can see that Herod's temple, that mighty, mighty thing. Not like the, the second temple that we talked about in Haggai a couple weeks ago, but, but there is that temple up there and they're just pointing out to Jesus and they're going, you said you were going to destroy the temple. Look at the temple. It looks like it's doing fine. There it is in all its splendor. And look at you. Look at you. You're hanging on a cross. You're going to be dead in a matter of hours. And that temple is going to go on and on and on and on. Well, only till 70 AD when the Romans come in and destroy it. Little did they know that now we meet Jesus, or we meet God at the foot of the cross of Christ. Now we meet God no longer in a temple We meet God in the person of Jesus Christ. But they have it all backwards. They think that it's weakness to stay on the cross and that coming down proves strength. But Jesus staying there shows he is determined. It shows he has strong love for sinners. Yet instead of embracing what's going on, instead of putting their trust in Jesus, they mock him. They reject the total history of Jesus. 
Jesus even said to a bunch of religious leaders, which of you accuses me of sin? And they were silent. They had nothing to say. Jesus lived a perfect life. That's why his father said to him when he was baptized, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. They totally reject all of Jesus' miracles. They don't deny them. We'll see that in a minute. They don't deny them. But Jesus did all these miracles demonstrating not only his, the great power of God, but the great compassion of God. They discount, they reject the incredible love and mercy that Jesus had for sinners. I mean, my goodness, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. They toss all of that out. They, they reject Jesus' incredible teaching. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, they said, this man teaches with authority, not like everybody else. And actually right now, what is he doing? He is demonstrating the Sermon on the Mount to them. Turning the other cheek. Not taking out his anger on his enemies. And yet, sadly, many of these passerbys, and honestly, guys, this, this is the mission field. Religious people are really tough. But this is the mission field, is the passerbys who are following the crowd all the way to hell. I have a tremendous burden for that in my life. I really fear that. Watching so many people follow the crowd instead of following Jesus. But it's even more than just blasphemy. There's, there's one of those things that sometimes when you read the scripture, you've got to go slow and you have to sort of read between the lines of, of what's exactly going on. But this is the last great temptation for Jesus. The scripture says in Hebrews 4.15 that, that he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. So just picture it for a second. You're Jesus in there and you're, and you're in the midst of all that pain and mockery and here comes the temptation. Why don't you come down? And guess what? You can do it. You can do it. He could save himself. How much do we all fight for self-preservation? That's the temptation there. This is your moment, Jesus. You can preserve yourself, but if he comes down... He can save himself, but none of us. But Jesus chose to remain faithful. So all who put their trust in Jesus instead of themselves can have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven with God. Now, some of you might push back on that. You said, I'm going to to heaven because I'm a good person. You're not trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in who? You're trusting in yourself. Scripture says that if you have failed in one point of God's law, you've failed in the whole thing. That's why Jesus' perfect life was so important. Some of you are saying, oh, no, 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 that's okay, don't worry about that. I did a lot of sacrifices and sacraments when I was a kid. Well, what are you trusting in? What you did, not Jesus. Jesus was truly God and truly man. And from a human perspective, From a strictly human perspective, this could be 
his greatest miracle of all. That he did not come down from that cross when he could have. Hours earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, remember Peter drew his sword uh, to stop Jesus from being arrested. Kind of interesting. Peter's there, pulls out his sword. Remember we said there was hundreds to maybe a thousand people coming out to arrest Jesus. But Peter has a sword. Jesus says to him, put it away. Put it away. And Jesus says this, Matthew 26, 53 to 54. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? We said at the time that could be 72,000 angels. While we think of angels as being these nice fluttery people, you know, who tell you to eat margarine instead of butter or something like that. (laughs) But when angels appear in the Bible, everybody's terrified. What do you think it would be like if 72,000 showed up? Jesus said, I could do that. But then he says, verse 54, how then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? What he said in the Good Shepherd passage, that I must obey my Father. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that says right now, call him down. Really? You're thinking of that treatment. The amazing thing that Jesus will say at one point is, Father, forgive them that they don't know what they're doing. I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? I want to say, Jesus, call the angels down. Defeat all of the earthly people there and wipe out all of the demonic. Just do it. Just do it. But Jesus knows the only way he could defeat my demons, the only way he could defeat your demons, the only way he could defeat the enemy of death was not to call those angels down was to die on the cross and rise from the dead. Friends, as we think about this and we absorb this, and I would encourage you to make this a regular part of your your Christian experience. Because if you think about Jesus dying there on the cross instead of you, stop saying he died on the cross for our sins. Say he died on the cross for my sins. I believe with all of my heart, maybe for someone in this room right now, just that thought alone and picturing Jesus on the cross in your place for your sins, that might make your heart explode with faith. That might change you in a way where you don't even know what's going on with you. That's part of the reason why we're here, to help you understand what's going on. For others... Maybe your Christian life is dry right now. It should bring you to worship. As there you are at the foot of the cross, looking up at him, saying, you would do this for me? You who created the world, the cosmos, you would do this for me? And don't be surprised as it becomes a regular part of your morning or afternoon or evening, whatever it is, devotional life, that you find you're going through a lot of tissues. Because it will be hard to stop the flood of tears 
as though you know you are, although you know you are a sinner, the experience of love is so intense that you really don't know what to do. Jesus said, if you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. That's how you do it. You come to the foot of the cross. You see what he's doing for you. And you say, I will serve you. And everybody will tell you, you're losing yourself. And you're like, no, I didn't lose myself. I'm finding myself. This is the scandalous message of Christianity. That God became a man. Because of God's great love for sinners, he lived a perfect life in your place. He died a sinner's death on the cross in your place, and he rose from the dead. So all who trust in him receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And notice I use the same word that the Bible uses over and over again, the word all. No matter what you've done, and some of the worst examples of people who become followers of Jesus are in the scriptures, so you would know that that invitation is open to all. Well, we come to verse 41. The religious leaders join in. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, I want to read verse 42 twice, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Let's go slowly. He saved others. What do they mean by that? Well, that's the miracles. That's the raising of people from the dead. They believed in the miracles. Their argument was not whether he committed them or did them or not. It was where they came from. They said he was doing them by the power of the devil. Other people said, how could the devil do stuff like this? I know in our culture, people question the miracles of Jesus. That's relatively recent. He saved others himself he cannot save. Well, it's interesting that that's true and not. It's not true that he couldn't save himself, but it is true that if Jesus is to save others, he cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, they say, and and that's he is, they're just rejecting him. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Then then they say words similar to Psalm 22.8. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Verse 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him. Now, just think about this is how sick this world is. Here you have two complete losers on either side of them. They're doomed. And they're making fun of them. It's like reality check. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now Matthew's keeping our focus on the cross and what happened, the reactions of the people that were there. In the negative sense. Luke tells us that one of them, after he reviled him so much, he cursed him out so much, one of them actually watched Jesus. Jesus essentially says nothing. All along he's been silent. He'll talk here and there to his father. But there they're watching this man die. And one of them turns to him and says, Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? 
What did he do? He repented and believed. He turned to God and put his trust in Jesus. It is that simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't make it more than it is. He saw Jesus crucified on the cross. He simply turned to him, willing to turn away from his sin. He actually becomes an evangelist on the cross. And he says to Jesus, will you remember me? And Jesus doesn't go, listen, man, you got to go do a bunch of sacraments. He doesn't say you have to be baptized. He says, today, you, you'll be with me in paradise. As we've seen, like many religious leaders today, these guys thought that they were far above the people. A lot of religious leaders and, and pastors and priests and stuff like that, they think they're way above the people. Uh, trust me, I don't think I'm way above you. Like we've said many times before, I may be up on the stage because the, the, the word of God is what we are under. That's the whole idea of a pulpit. We are under the word of God, all of us. You say, well, you're, you're standing uh, up here. Okay, fine. I got about 15 hours on all of you on this text and a box of tissues before I got up here this morning. And I've taught this in Matthew. I've taught it in Mark three times. I've taught it in John twice, and I've taught it in Luke. And look at me. Look at me. These are clearly phony men of God. And Matthew wants us to see that. I mean, it's even surprising that they're there. Their attendance, they're mixing with the riffraff. Gosh, their attendance is a testimony of their hatred of Jesus. Even Pontius Pilate saw it. Remember, he said they brought him to Jesus, they brought Jesus to them because of envy. They despise Jesus so much, pretending to represent God. They are full of hate for God. They're full of hate for Jesus and his people. Yet, interestingly enough, One thing they have on so many pastors today is they don't deny the power of Jesus. And yet so many today do. Notice also they don't talk to Jesus. They won't talk to the riffraff from Galilee. They talk to one another. They're close enough to the cross so Jesus can hear them. Yet Matthew seems to be mocking the mockers. I mean, he's like, Matthew's like, they're so religious, they're clueless to what is going on. They're so religious, they're clueless to the work of God. Yet I think there's another part that's here where Matthew is saying to all of us, don't you see what's going on? Can you, can you honestly sit here, watch what's going on, and not put your trust in him? Open your spiritual eyes. And if you don't have them right now, pray that God would open your spiritual eyes to him. Notice they say, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. I highly doubt it. But true faith, loved ones, is believing and trusting that Jesus is the Son of God because among things, he did not come down from that cross. 
See, they totally miss what's keeping him on that cross. It's not the nails. There's not enough nails in the whole world to keep him on that cross. It's the power of Jesus keeping his commitment to his heavenly father. It's the, it's the power of love for people that kept Jesus on that cross. You know, this kind of stuff is very foreign to what we, the way we think. It really is. We, we live in a culture that doesn't really matter if we honor our commitments. People, people dump commitments like it's nothing. There's an old illustration about the Titanic that, you know, the, the Titanic had some of the richest people in the world on it. In fact, I believe the richest man in the world was on it at the time. And uh, Guggenheim was on it. Many, many of you been to the Guggenheim? He was on it. And so you watch the movie Titanic and it shows all the rich guys hopping in the boat and letting the poor people die on the Titanic. Yet the truth is, a lot of those rich guys died on the Titanic. Sadly, when they asked the, um, you know, the people who produced the movie, why did you have the rich guys getting in the Titanic? Why some of them died on the Titanic? You know what the answer was? Nobody today would believe that. And here we have the Son of God making a commitment to say, I promised my father I would die for people. I'm going to be obedient to my promise. I'm going to keep my word. I told my apostles all the way on our way to Jerusalem that this was going to happen. I am going to keep my word. And here's the interesting thing. By not calling down the angels on these religious leaders, these phony men of God, he actually saves them in the moment. (laughs) And he gives them the chance to repent. And some of them did. They even challenged Jesus' trust to his heavenly Father. This, to me, I've said this before, this is the most amazing thing to me about Jesus. The miracles, I get, all that stuff I get. This is the most amazing thing about Jesus, that he lived in 24-7 trust to his heavenly Father. That's what made him the perfect sacrifice, and they're challenging it. Next, we'll see the great, next week, we'll see the great test of the cross when the loss of his heavenly Father's presence becomes a reality to Jesus. And Jesus does it all while he experiences the grim reality of the anger of people, of the bitterness of this world, when Jesus is doing this for the people of this world. All he did was come to love and to save, to seek and save that which was lost, And this is how the world treated him. You know, it's funny how when you get older, things change, doesn't it? Those of you who get older. I think of. I think of young Peter. Ready to draw out his sword. I'll fix it, Jesus. Don't worry. Listen to the words Peter wrote when he was old. First Peter 2, 23 and 24 talking about Jesus, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He trusted his father. 
who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So friend, let me ask you, have you returned to the overseer of your souls? Have you come to Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about being religious. Have you come to the foot of the cross? Or are you resisting the call of Jesus from the cross? 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Who are those people? They are the people who are not going to heaven. But to us who are being saved, those are the people going to heaven, it is the power of God. Now, some people go, what do you mean being saved? What, what, what do you mean by that? It's actually biblical terminology. We've used this before. It's the, it's the illustration of you're out in the middle of the stormy seas and you are drowning. And Jesus comes out in the Coast Guard boat and he throws a line to you. And he pulls you onto the boat. You've been saved. He didn't say, oh, it's you. Nah, I ain't throwing the line. He didn't say, what have you done? No, he said, you called out to me. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You called me and I came. So then you're on the boat. You're driving back to the shoreline. The storm is raging. Life is tough. You are being saved. Now, a lot of you think, well, I fell overboard. I don't think you can fall overboard. I think you can fall on board, but I don't think you can fall overboard. And then you get to the shoreline. So let's just talk about being saved, that you're in the water there. Jesus is rescuing you. And then you're on the boat. You're going back. That's the Christian life that you're leading, if you're a Christian right now. And then you get to dry land. That's your arrival home with the Lord. You have been saved Jesus will come again in power to judge the living and the dead. It is so important that you realize that the scripture teaches that his judgment will be based upon your reaction to the cross. His judgment will be based upon what everything that you heard today. Jesus was not rescued on the cross, he was not rescued by angels. He was not rescued by his heavenly father. Why was he not rescued? So you and I could be rescued. The big problem is this. So many people pass by Jesus. They pass by Jesus without putting their trust in Jesus. So they could be rescued. And they just keep on walking. So many people follow the crowd to hell instead of following Jesus to heaven. With every fiber of my being in all honesty, I pray that's not you. I pray that's not you, that your trust is only in the crucified and risen King. Let's pray.